if you were to try to sum up what the Bible says about salvation, there are probably a couple of phrases that would come quickly to mind. Right? One of the things that would probably the first thing that most of us would say, if somebody said, what does it mean to be saved? We would say, well, God forgives your sin. Right? We, we have sin, and that separates us from God, and the wages of sin is death. But when God saves you, when you trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven. All that's wiped out, and you're made clean. Right? That, that's an important, fundamental part of how we describe salvation. Another phrase that would probably come quickly to mind is uh, that we receive eternal life. Right? That The Bible makes very clear that if we believe in Jesus we receive eternal life. We get to live with Him forever. Another phrase that's just as important, but maybe not as likely to come to our minds if someone says, what does it mean for God to save you? What does it mean to receive salvation? Is the resurrection of the body. That, That our hope that our, our promise, our, our certain future that we receive when we are saved by faith in Christ is God promises to raise us bodily from the dead. Now, all three of those phrases uh, form the conclusion of the Apostles' Creed. And this is our last sermon going through the Apostles' Creed is our outline of the key doctrines, the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. And I just want to say one more time in this study, one of the reasons why I think the Apostles' Creed is so beneficial for us to to use and even to know is because it reminds us of what the Bible says is most important and oftentimes reminds us of things that we don't normally think of as being of first importance or chief importance. Right? There are things we have noticed as we've gone through the Apostles' Creed that we, it's pointed us back to Scripture and we've said, you're right, that is a dominant theme in the Bible, but it's not one of the first things that comes to mind when somebody says, what is the Christian faith or what does it mean to be a Christian? Again, we might easily say the forgiveness of sins, that's part of it. Everlasting life, that's part of it. We don't often talk about the resurrection of the body, but there it is in the Apostles' Creed reminding us this is a key part of what God has said salvation is about. That's why things like the Apostles' Creed are helpful because they point us back to Scripture. Right? They help us summarize in a clear and concise way what the Bible teaches. And sometimes they remind us or, or point us toward things that we've missed, we've overlooked, or perhaps forgotten. So we're going to look at those three phrases and, and what the Bible has to say about them this morning. The, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting or eternal life. We're going to start with the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to be kind of all over the Bible this morning. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 15. So if you're already there, that's probably a good place to stay. Um, but there'll be other verses I'll mention all along the way that you're welcome to jot down. But we'll, we'll go through them too fast to be flipping to all of them. But when we start talking about the forgiveness of sins, that takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible where sin first entered the world, where sin first became a problem. Because God did not create man in a state of sin. 
Right? God created man good. He created man in his image. Man, uh, male and female. He created them in the image of God. He placed them in the Garden of Eden. The world that God made was good. And yet, Adam and Eve, right, our first parents, didn't trust God. Eve listened to the serpent. Both Adam and Eve turned from what God had given them and what God had told them. And they went the way God had told them not to go. They did what God had forbidden them to do. They sinned against Him. They transgressed His law. They rebelled deliberately against Him. And that first sin has had consequences for everybody else. You you can see it in just reading the book of Genesis. After Adam and Eve sin, do their children start with a clean slate in the Garden of Eden? No. They are born outside the garden where Adam and Eve had been exiled and expelled. And what happened with the first two kids Adam and Eve had? Well, one of them killed the other one. Cain killed Abel. You don't have to get very far. In the very next chapter after the fall in Genesis chapter 4, where not only does Cain kill Abel, but then you've got this guy, Lamech, who takes more than one wife, who kills a man. I mean, it goes downhill fast. Right? We're only in Genesis chapter 6 when God says the world is so corrupt and, 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 and the intention of men's heart is so evil continually that God wipes out almost the entire world with a flood, saves Noah and his family. You also see it from things the Bible says elsewhere, right? That all of us are sinners, right? There's no, one, there's no exception to that. Romans 3 says that no one is good, no one is righteous, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. David said in Psalm 51, Surely in sin did my mother conceive me. Talking about the fact that from the moment he was conceived, he had a sin nature. He was affected and tainted by sin because ever since Adam and Eve, we're all born sinners. We're all born in sin and we all actively sin. We all choose to go our own way instead of God's way. We all choose to do things that God says don't do. And so we've got a problem. Right? Because the wages of sin is death. And that's been the case from the beginning too. That's what God told Adam and Eve. If you eat of that tree, you're going to die. And the consequence didn't change after that. The wages of sin is death for all of us. And yet, the good news that the Bible gives us is that God sent His Son into the world to pay for our sin, to take our sin upon Himself so that our sin could be forgiven, so it could be wiped out, so that it could be cleansed. The Bible says that sin defiles us, it makes us unclean, but Jesus cleanses us from sin, washes us from our iniquity. For example, in uh, Matthew 1, when the angel was telling Joseph about the child that Mary was going to bear, The angel told Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. How would he do that? Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, that in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's through his blood, in other words, through his death that our sins are are paid for. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus died in our place so that we wouldn't have to pay for our own sin. When Peter was preaching the gospel in Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, he said to him, talking about 
Christ, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the good news that the, the Bible tells us over and over and over again. That because of what Jesus did through his life and death and resurrection, that if you will turn from your sin and you will trust in him, that your sins will be forgiven. They will be blotted out. They will be wiped out. And that's why the Bible can say in Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know our conscience testifies right, that we deserve to be condemned because of our sin. And if your conscience is awake and alive, the very thought of that is terrifying. Right? But the good news that the gospel speaks to our hearts and to our consciences is this. If you are in Christ, if you belong to Christ, though you deserve to be condemned, there is no condemnation for you. Christ took that condemnation in your place. Christ paid the debt that you owed because of your sin. You have been made new. You have been made clean. And you are forgiven once and for all. Right? And when you sin... As we still continue to do, the Bible says, what do you do? If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's why Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Because we daily, constantly have to say, God, I've sinned. Please forgive me. And that forgiveness is there, secured through the death of Christ. So, the forgiveness of sin, we believe that, right? The Bible is clear about that. And then second, the resurrection of the body. Now, this is the one we don't think about as often. But it's still central and essential. And and I want us to think about it more often than we do, right? Um, We know that Jesus rose. That's already been covered earlier in the Apostles' Creed, right? And that shows up all over the New Testament. All four Gospels end with the resurrection of Jesus. They don't end with Jesus on the cross. They don't end with Jesus on the tomb. Or, uh, to be in the tomb. They end with the tomb empty and Jesus alive and risen, never to die again. But we don't only believe in the resurrection of Jesus. We believe the resurrection of Jesus has secured our resurrection as well. That Jesus' bodily resurrection secures not only new resurrected life, so to speak, here and now, though we have been raised to new life, like Romans 6 says, it also secures our future bodily resurrection. That if you or I die before Jesus comes back, then when He comes, just like He walked out of the tomb, you're going to walk out of the tomb. That's what the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier, I want to highlight a, a, a couple of places. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 and 23, it says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Firstfruits is the, the beginning of the harvest, right? It's not the full harvest. It's just sort of the, the sample at the beginning that gives you an idea of what the whole rest of the harvest is going to be like. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Everyone who's in Christ, everyone who belongs to Christ, it's saying, will be made alive. Will be raised as Christ was raised. His resurrection was just the beginning. Now, one of the reasons why it's so important for us to remember this is because it's easy to think of our salvation only in spiritual terms. Right? So we might say things like, God has saved my soul. Right? And that's true. 100% true. But it is also true that God has saved your body. Also 100% true. And if we don't believe both of those things, then we get ourselves into trouble. If we think of our salvation only in spiritual terms, only that God has saved my soul, but my salvation has nothing to do with my body, then we will either end up thinking of our body as a prison that we can't wait to get out of. Our body is just sinful and condemned, and so I just want to get my spirit out of my body. Right? Because I'm stuck here. And I don't belong here. That's not a biblical way to think about our bodies or about the way salvation works. So we could go wrong in that direction. Right? Or we can go wrong in another direction by thinking, if God saved my soul but not my body, that means my body doesn't matter, which means I can do whatever I want in my body as long as spiritually I'm in fellowship with God. My body's not important. God didn't care about it. It doesn't really affect my salvation, so I can act out in sinful ways. And that's not really important because salvation is just, it's just in here. It's just in, it's what goes on in my heart, in my soul. It might look to you like I'm not walking with God because I'm doing all these sinful things, but, but you can't see my heart, and that's where salvation happens. Both of those ways of thinking are unbiblical and dangerous. We need to remember that the salvation that God has accomplished for us is a full and complete salvation of both our body and our soul. So, for example, Paul can say in Romans 8, verse 23, he says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves, talking about Christians, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait Eagerly for what? What are we waiting eagerly for? Are we waiting eagerly for our spirit to be released from our body? No. He says we're waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We can't wait for these broken bodies to experience the full redemption that Jesus secured for us, not only by His death, but also by His resurrection. His resurrection secures our resurrection. And when we are raised from the dead, our bodies are not going to be like they are right now. They're going to be so much better. Here's what Paul says about this. Again, this is the end of 1 Corinthians 15. When he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That means we're not all going to die before Jesus comes back. Some of us will be alive. 
We're not all going to sleep, but we shall all be changed. So whether you die before Jesus comes back or whether you're alive when Jesus comes back, we're all going to experience this transformation, this change. And he said it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now, when he says the dead are going to be raised imperishable, he's not talking about your soul. Your soul is already imperishable. Right? When, when a believer dies, right, our body goes into the ground, it perishes, but our soul goes into the presence of the Lord. That's why Paul can say, I'd rather depart and be with Christ. Because when I die, that's what's going to happen. My soul is going to go into the presence of Jesus. And that's better, Paul says, than being here. But even better than that is what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and our perishable bodies become imperishable. They're raised immortal. He says, this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. So when we are raised, right, our bodies are no longer going to be perishable. Right? We know what perishable things are. Things that go bad, get old, right? They're, they're no good anymore. You have perishable food. After a while, you don't want anything to do with it, right? Our bodies, they get sick, they break, they wear out. Eventually, they die. But he says, when Jesus comes back, these perishable bodies are going to be imperishable. They're not going to wear out. They're not going to be weak. They're not going to break. They're not going to die. He says, these mortal bodies will put on immortality. No more death. And when that happens, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Think about this. When we die, right, and our body goes into the ground, and our spirit goes into the presence of the Lord, that is, at minimum, an escape from death, in a sense. Right? Because our soul continues to live in the presence of God. You might could even call it, in some sense, a victory. But it's not the full victory that Paul's talking about here. For death to be swallowed up in victory. Death has to be completely overcome. And what is death, right, but the division of your soul from your body? That's what death is. So for death to be utterly overcome... Your body's got to come out of the grave, or out of the ground, or out of the sea, or wherever it ends up, right? And if you start thinking about, well, what happens if this or that? What happens if I die like this? Or what happens if this happens to my body after I die? The God who spoke the universe into existence can take care of raising your body from the dead, wherever it is, whatever happened to it. You don't have to worry about that. But just using the the resurrection imagery, right, from the resurrection of Jesus, your body's coming out of the tomb. Alive, whole, resurrected, glorious, imperishable, immortal, never to die again. That's why at the end of the Bible, we're not off in heaven anymore, right? Which is where our spirit goes when we die now. At the end of the Bible, there's a new heavens and a new earth. 
Because on that new earth, we're going to live in new bodies, in a new world, in the presence of God, in a new way. It's going to be new for us. It's going to be a whole lot like what Adam and Eve had back in the Garden of Eden, except for better. Because we're not even going to be able to die. And not even going to be able to sin. That part of our salvation, we often forget. But in some sense, it's the best part. Right? It's the part we ought to be longing for the most. We need forgiveness of sins so that we can be allowed to live in resurrected bodies in the presence of God forever. The way we were designed to live. And that brings us to the last phrase, which is the life everlasting or eternal life. This is promised in the most famous verse in all the Bible in John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Eternal life. And that's a gift that God gives. Right? Jesus says in John 10.28 about His sheep, those who listen to His voice, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And Paul puts it this way in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You you and I, we, we earn death easily. But God gives us eternal life. Something we don't deserve, something that we never could earn. But that he gives us freely because he's gracious merciful and forgiving. And we also need to remember that eternal life is not just about how long we live, but about who we're with and who we know. Because Jesus, as he was about to go to the cross, was praying in John 17, and he said this, he says, this is eternal life. He's praying to his Father, He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not just about living forever, it's about living forever in fellowship with God, knowing God. When the Sadducees came to Jesus trying to discredit the resurrection, they thought the resurrection was a ridiculous idea, and um, they tried to make that point through a, a, a tricky question they posed to Jesus. Well, they thought it was tricky. No question really ever could trick Jesus. But Jesus said something surprising in response to their question about the resurrection. He said something like this. Haven't you read where God says in the Old Testament, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And and God said that in Exodus, where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they all died back in Genesis, right? He says, haven't you read where God said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. To know God, to be in fellowship with God, is eternal life. And those who have that eternal life will also be raised to experience that life 
the fullness of that salvation in resurrected, immortal bodies. And all of that is made possible because Jesus not only died to pay the penalty for our sin, but rose to secure our resurrection and eternal salvation. Praise God for that. Let's pray.